Good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dodds, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, today, we're continuing our sermon series through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And over the past few chapters, Paul has been challenging the Corinthian misconceptions concerning the body, sexuality, marriage, and singleness. And so today, we're going to take a look at what he has to say about living as we have been called. Now, in chapter 7, Paul has devoted his counsel to questions about marriage and celibacy, but then in these middle verses, he takes this abrupt shift uh, to counsel the Corinthians concerning circumcision and freedom, which have probably a lot of us thinking, um, has Paul derailed? Has he abandoned the main road for some rabbit trail? And the answer is no. Um, Paul is still talking about marriage and celibacy because Paul is not ultimately concerned with circumcision or slavery. He has just chosen these topics to undergird the force of his pastoral and practical instruction about marriage and celibacy with theological reasoning. He's using these illustrations to amplify his main point. It does still leave us with a question, uh, though. Why does Paul address circumcision and freedom in the middle of pastoral guidance about marriage, singleness, remarriage, and celibacy? Well, Paul is illustrating a divine principle that no matter our earthly condition, no matter our earthly status, it is compatible with God's calling to us in Christ Jesus. Our status and condition is not improved by our gender, our racial heritage, our social or marital status. In Christ, we are no longer slaves to status. We're slaves to God. And so that brings us to point one, the reason for living as we are called. Now, as we pick up in verse 17, Paul is taking time to urge his Corinthian brothers and sisters to remain as they are at the time of their conversion, when they trusted Christ um, as king and as Lord. So let's take a look at verses 17, 20, and 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So Paul places his guiding principle at the beginning, middle, and end of these verses. So it's sort of structured like a Big Mac. Um, if that's upsetting to you, it's like a club sandwich. Take your pick. Um, but because Paul is so adamant about this principle for the Corinthians to remain in whatever condition they're in, it can be assumed that many of the Corinthian Christians were convinced that in order to improve their status, in order to become real, devoted, true, undefiled Christians, that the arrangements of their life and the relationships in their life would have to be altered or abandoned. And that is exactly what many of them were doing. Wives and husbands were leaving their unbelieving spouses. Some were insisting on celibacy within their own marriages. Some Jews and Gentile, Gentile uh, Christians were seeking to abandon their own ethnicity for another. And slaves were clamoring for freedom. Now the Corinthians had their identity and their condition mixed up. They were saying, okay, so now that my identity has been completely changed as a result of who Christ is and who I am now in Christ, 
my relationships, my past, my social standing, my ethnicity, everything has got to change with that. But Paul's immediate pastoral concern is to set the Corinthians free from that distraction to wholehearted obedience to God, wherever they are and however they are. So to continue the field metaphor from chapter three, if you remember, wherein God's people are a vineyard that is growing and needs to be tended, to remain in the condition in which you were called, Paul is essentially saying, bloom where you are planted. Don't uproot yourself to try to become something that you're not. Live the life that God has assigned to you. And the word there for assigned is apportioned. It's the same word that Paul uses in his letter to the Romans when he tells them that God has given them a measure of grace. Each person, each believer, a measure of grace. He's given you this portion of grace. Well, here he's saying he's given you this life and everything in it is a part of that calling. So live the life, continue to live in the condition that you were in when you trusted the faithfulness of Christ on your behalf. You don't need to change any of that. You don't need to change any of those conditions in order to improve your status and standing with God. And this was novel counsel to the Corinthians, and it brings us to point number two. Point number two, the difficulty of living as we're called. So let's jump to verses 18 and 19. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. So in Corinth, there were impressionable Jewish and Gentile Christians, and they were being made slaves of social status and public opinion. So there were some there who were insisting on circumcision as the true mark of a bona fide believer in Christ. There was a a subset of Gentiles that had been attending the synagogues, essentially hoping to become Jewish. They were called God-fearers, and some of them had taken this radical next step to become Jewish through circumcision. In the context, Corinth... In the context of Corinth, it was still heavily influenced by Greco-Roman culture, and so others were pressing Jewish men to leave the faith of their fathers, to leave the physical sign of that covenant. So many Jewish men were tempted to undergo a particular surgery that actually masked their circumcision. It undid it. And Paul's counsel here stresses that those who were circumcised or uncircumcised when God called them, that that trading that can't enhance their spiritual status by embracing another ethnicity. And so he says to them, circumcision and uncircumcision, it counts for nothing. Now, I know that it's hard for us to to really grasp this, but this was incredibly shocking because circumcision was a big deal. It was huge. I mean, in the Old Testament, which is the portion of the Bible that's written before Jesus, it was a sign, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with his people that he had established with with Abraham and all his descendants, all of the Israelites, God's people. And it was a visible identity marker that set them apart from the rest of the world. 
So being circumcised did count for something, but Paul, a former Pharisee, a law-abiding Jew, a religious elitist, who, had, who, who said about himself, I preached circumcision. He's the one saying that it doesn't mean anything, that this doesn't mean anything when it comes to attaining any kind of higher spiritual ground. If you're a Gentile, don't become a Jew to improve your status. It can't happen. If you're a Jew, don't become Gentile to improve your status. That can't happen either. Those distinctions are there. You are Jewish. You are Gentile. You're not a Gentile. You're not a Jew. The distinctions are there, but in a way they're not. And Paul could have said, he could have said at this point, marriage is nothing. Celibacy is nothing. Singleness is nothing. He could have said that because none of those things None of those things commend us to God or make us right before God either. Changing or remaining in the condition that you're in is not the virtue. That's what Paul is saying. That's not the virtue. It's not everything. So what does Paul say is everything? He says it's keeping the commandments of God. Okay, what does that mean? Paul's letter to the church in Galatia is going to prove very helpful at this point, let's look at Galatians 5, verse 6. Same writer, Paul, writing to the Galatian church. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So, what counts for everything is not rule following, it's not ritual obedience, it's keeping the commandments of God. And keeping the commandments of God means it looks like faith working through love. Love And by faith, we're not talking about a profession of faith. We're not talking about adherence to a certain doctrine. We're talking about a life of faith that works itself out in love. A faith that operates in the ways, at least, that Paul has already taught in 1 Corinthians, in ways that he will teach through 1 Corinthians. But at least it can mean this, that It's a faith that fights for unity among brothers and sisters and against division. It's a faith that promotes holiness and wisdom that sacrifices itself so that other people flourish. It's a faith that flees sexual immorality just as quickly as greed. It's a faith that is content to walk at the back of the line unnoticed. It's a faith that repents and loves and gives and hopes. Now, perhaps we'll say it's very freeing to know that. This is beautiful. It is very freeing to know this, that our faith is not just unadorned belief, but action. But what does Paul's counsel to remain in our condition, to live the life that God has assigned to us, what does that mean for us right now? What does that mean for sojourn? Now, there are so many applications, but I think one is enough, and so just this one in particular. In Christ, you don't have to erase your past. You don't have to leave your past whether you grew up around a country club or a community center. God's grace is for you. 
Maybe you have a past that you would gladly trade, you gladly rewrite. You don't have to do that in order to be worthy of God's grace. Maybe you have a family of which you're ashamed or a family that's ashamed of you or a story that you're too embarrassed to tell or too scared to tell. God's grace is for you. You don't have to erase your past. Maybe you do think that having a different past would make you more worthy to receive his grace, but remember Paul's words to us all in chapter one. He says, not many of you were of noble birth, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were wise. Some of you were. Some of you were powerful, some of you were noble birth, some of you were wise, but not all of you. It's God's grace came to a a wide array of spaces, and it still does. It comes to the public school and the private school. It comes to the country club and the community center. It comes to the suburbs and to the city. And it doesn't prefer a culture or ethnicity or an income or a pedigree or a past. If you ask for it and want it, God's grace is for you right now, right where you are. It reminds me of a, um, of a, a song by Ani DeFranco called As Is. And the chorus goes, and I have no illusions about you. And guess what? I never did. When I said I take you, I meant as is. That's where God's grace can meet you, as is. Let's jump to verses 21 and 22. Keep moving. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Slavery in first century Corinth was pervasive, but it wasn't invariably oppressive. It, it provided people with economic security. It provided upward social mobility. And to be the slave of a powerful master, it could be a very honorable position. Sometimes free men and women, for a variety of reasons, sold themselves into slavery because it could help them pay off debt, it could help them improve their financial station. So this was not pre-reconstruction southern slavery because anybody could be a slave. Slavery at this time didn't go after one race or one color, it, it was open to everyone. But slavery was considered a low status. Slaves didn't have legal rights, they were, they were considered property and not people. And depending upon their master, they could have easily endured a ton of cruelty or enjoyed a life of true ease, care, and hospitality. There wasn't a lot of manual labor. 
Christian slaves could have translated their lack of human worth in the world's eyes as a slave. They could have translated that to a lack of worth in God's eyes, and that's what could have made their freedom to them an imperative before they could be fully Christian. But here, interestingly, Paul's counsel is slightly different than what he tells those who were seeking to embrace or flee Judaism. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, if you are a slave, don't seek to become free. He says, don't be concerned about it. Are you a slave? Don't worry about it. In fact, if you get an opportunity to become free, do it. A slave could buy themselves out of slavery, or they could be set free by their owner. And Paul expresses an exception that accords with the complexity of this particular condition. Perhaps in the same way that he prefers singleness over marriage, Paul is telling us that he prefers freedom to slavery. Now, that doesn't mean that marriage is slavery. (laughs) It also doesn't mean that singleness is freedom. Don't hear me say that. But a free man can be more devoted to the Lord just the way that a single person can be more devoted to the Lord because A slave is free from a human master to consider, and a single person is free from a spouse. But then, really in the in verses in verse twenty-two, kind of reads like a proverb, Paul reverses the status of slave and free person. He doesn't do that to Jew and Gentile, but here he does. He reverses the status of slave and free person. Now, it's not a definition of individual status, but it corresponds to Paul's theology of relationships within the body of Christ, within the church. And the result is a reversal of relative status within Christ's household. A slave who would have been embarrassed by his low station and thinking, I am lower in the eyes of God. Paul says, you are given great esteem. You are a slave, but in Christ you are free. You belong to God. And a free person who may have felt entitled or that their freedom actually increased their status and social standing, Paul graces them with humility and says, hey, if you're free, you're still a bondservant of Christ. So on one hand, Paul is saying, stop, Corinthians, stop worrying about status. But if you must know, to be a slave of Christ outranks any other status in any other household. We should all be so lucky and so blessed to be a slave of Christ. Now, Paul's point here is not to insist that people remain in their present condition to the extent of refusing emancipation, but rather that whether slave or free, their social condition should not distract them from full devotion to Jesus. None of these conditions, none of these conditions promote or impede our status in Christ. So they don't matter, but they also do because Paul says the gospel is gonna be lived out through all of these earthly conditions. Single, married, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. No matter your condition, no matter your vocation, no matter your racial heritage, you are going to live out the gospel through all of these 
constraints and freedoms, not in spite of them. Paul is showing the Corinthians and us that the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of true freedom and true realism. It's not just in the ethereal plane of belief. It's in our lives, lived out, faith, working through love. So keeping the commandments of God is what counts, which means that we're going to do what God requires and we're gonna do it in the way that he requires it. We do serve. We serve an unchanging God amidst changing circumstances, which means that our obedience is not mindless. It can't be. It can't be mindless or heartless or prayerless. We tend to want to freeze what obedience looks like, to sort of freeze it in time and say that it's this to take black and white instructions and apply them to every single gray circumstance. And I agree, obedience is easier if we don't have to think with our hearts and our minds. But to live, a wood, to live out a wooden obedience without consideration, without thinking and talking and considering and praying, it's not wise and it's not mature. And we have definitely been called to both of those as God's people. Now, before we get to close in point three, I do want to take just a moment to talk about our daily lives and work, and I'd like to lead into that with a story. So, in the Old Testament, portion of the Bible written before Christ came, um, the book of 2 Kings tells of a Syrian general named Naaman. Now, Naaman was second in command to the king of Syria. He was essentially the prime minister. And Naaman was a very loyal general, but he was very cruel, pretty brutal, actually. But he was struck with leprosy. And he went to see the prophet Elijah to be healed. And so he meets Elijah. Elijah tells him that he has to dunk himself in the Jordan River seven times. And so Naaman does as he's told, and he is completely healed. He comes back to Elijah, promises to just give him this fortune of compensation. Elijah very graciously refuses and says, I don't, I don't need anything. But Naaman at that moment commits himself to worshiping the Lord of Israel as a result of his healing. What's most worth noting, at least for this, this particular illustration, is that even as a changed man, Naaman returned he assumed his responsibilities as a commander of the army of the king of Syria. So even in light of his new lord and new allegiances, he didn't leave his post. He didn't leave his condition. He committed himself to serve his nation. It's just that now he wasn't worshiping that nation. He was worshiping the God of that nation. And Naaman was able to go back to his workplace as a changed man with new allegiances. The gospel gives us a declaration of freedom, but it is not a requirement that any of us in this room consider, well, maybe if I leave my cush job and move out to a third world country and start a nonprofit organization, that's when I'll know I'm a real Christian. That's when I'll know I'm sold out to Jesus. You don't have to do that to be a real Christian. 
Now, if your job is overtly evil, promoting sin in the world, by all means, change your position. By all means, leave your job. But if you're a lawyer, barista, coal miner, a local politician, an engineer, a teacher, a nurse, salesman, you do not have to abandon your condition to truly follow Jesus. You're called to be where you are, a Christian lawyer, a Christian barista, a Christian coal miner, a Christian nurse and teacher. So maybe it's better if we, instead of abandoning our jobs and thinking that that's the real call, is missionary life or a pastorate or somewhere that's not in the world, but somewhere that we can actually tie directly service to Jesus and say, now I know I'm being a Christian. Maybe instead of that, we could say, how about we start asking in our workplaces, what would faith working through love look like in this office? What would it look like to fight for unity in my office and fight against division? What would it look like to fight for holiness in my workplace, in my job? What would it like to be, to be a person of justice in the place that I work? Being content with life, being content with our condition means welcoming and accepting the circumstances that God and his providence has brought. It could mean being content with poverty, if God so chooses. That doesn't mean being content in poverty means that you can never try to work or rise out of poverty. It means that whether rich or poor, you can be grateful for God and trust him as your provider but it can also mean being content in your place as a average, middle class, lower class, married, unmarried, suburban, urban, kids, no kids, that it can be that that's, you're content with your condition in Christ. See, the life-changing, extraordinary spiritual event is not what really matters, and it's not what we should be chasing anyway. Patient dedication to the ordinary, everyday, seemingly tedious disciplines of corporate family worship, of teaching, prayer, repentance, discipleship, the Lord's Supper, baptism, those things should not be abandoned for more seemingly sensational waves of evangelical enthusiasm. Most of real life will be enjoyed and lived in the ordinary, and ordinary does not mean mediocre. We have a real gospel to live out in a real world of a real savior who's really working in his real people to invite real brothers and sisters in to a real kingdom that's broken into the real now. So you can return to your post as an attorney or an Apple genius and still live a life of faith working through love where God has placed you, he's called you. If you're there, he's called you. Doesn't mean that you can never leave. It's not Hotel California, okay? But it's it's not required that you do that in order to find what's truly fulfilling. You don't have to go about trying, with, trying to find what's truly fulfilling. It, he already is. 
A job won't fulfill that. And that brings us to point three, our final point, the purpose of living as we're called. And we're gonna end in verse 23. Paul says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Gary Shandling, uh, I don't know if you all know who Gary Shandling is. He's late and great stand-up comedian. He once said, the world is confused because we're trying to be somebody else. Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, married, unmarried, and Corinth, they're all trying to be someone else through improving their status and social condition, and it was resulting in a deeper slavery to that chasing of status. But this is what Paul is telling us here. This is the reason that everything has changed. When Jesus died on the cross and resurrected, everything changed. Our condition changed. And because when Jesus did that, he brought down every dividing wall between every race. And by giving up his own freedom, he purchased every one of us with his own life and betrothed himself as the bridegroom to his people, the church. So now, like Paul said in chapter six, now we are not our own. And maybe as Paul would tell us, as he's told us many times these past couple of weeks, yeah, it's your life, but it's not. Sure, it's yours, but it's not. You were bought with a price. The great change is not one of our own personal status. It's a change in lordship. It's a change in owner. We have a new master. We had the master of sin and death, and now we've been bought, and we have a new owner. We are slaves of Christ, no longer slaves of social status and pedigree and income and upward mobility, but slaves to a benevolent, strong kind, sacrificial, loving, wise, self-controlled, intimate, gentle owner who promises to provide everything we'll ever need and gives us the greatest gift in himself by his own payment. So brothers and sisters, if you believe in his faithfulness, if you trust in his faithfulness, then he has purchased you He's placed his spirit inside of you. Find freedom in obedience to him because he owns you, owns you. And may we be, by God's grace, a loving and sacrificial community for any person of any color, in any state, any background, with any story, male or female, married or unmarried. And may May each of those people be a blessing to our body and to our world. Let's pray. Father, it is, it is good to know that you rule us and that you own us. We don't have to wonder how in you are. We don't have to worry about our past because it's not bigger than your grace. And God, we pray that your grace would come to more. 
Help us to own our past. Help us to own our story. To own what's happened to us, no matter how embarrassing or shameful. Lord, you bore our shame on the cross. Help us to believe that. Father, help us to believe that ordinary daily faithfulness is extraordinary. God, please use all of those nourishments for this body, your word, prayer, repentance, community, your supper, your baptism. God, make us glad to be owned by you. Make us see that the highest status we could ever achieve is slave and we're glad to be it because you are an incredible God, a loving and kind and faithful owner. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust you, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.